need a timer because um, I don't want to go too long. So this is, this is my first time preaching in five years. Um, I preached three times before when I was an intern at the ring. Now I'm preaching again because our pastor is on vacation, well-deserved vacation. Um, and the first time I preached, um, I went for 55 minutes. Um, and I don't, I don't want to do that today, so... 30 seconds in already, so let's, uh, let's get going. My name's Chris. I should have said that before. Um, I'm on staff here at Living Hope, and I'm very excited to do this. Um, I'm feeling fresh. I preached the first service as well, um, but now I, I have cameras looking at me, which is a little different. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're going to jump right in. So we'll be in John 21 this morning. Uh, it's going to be a little different than a normal sermon. Uh, we're doing... We're going to look at the character of Peter. Uh, we're going to do a little character study. And um, I want you to stay in John 21. I'm going to be hopping all over the place, but the verses will be put up on the screen uh, as we get there. So you can just hang out in John 21. Um, so just to sort of set the stage for our text this morning, Easter has happened. Jesus is risen. He's alive. He has appeared to Mary Magdalene. He's appeared to the disciples already twice before. He's appeared to other people, as we know from the other Gospels. Um, And then on this random morning, Peter wakes up and he says, I'm going fishing. (laughs) And uh, the other disciples who are with him say, we're coming too. So we pick up at daybreak. Um, The disciples are in a boat. and They're not having much luck. Um, So John 21, verse 4, says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. for They were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. So, in my prep for today... I've been looking at a lot of stories about Peter, this one, but a lot of them throughout the, the four Gospels. And um, this story just sort of encapsulate, encapsulates the, the, the essence of Peter. Like it's full on Peter. Um, he's focused on fishing so much that he doesn't even realize that Jesus is standing there um, telling him, hey, cast the nets on the other side of the boat. This is his closest friend, his rabbi. You would think hearing his voice would be like, oh. But not only should this be super obvious to him, it also parallels an event that happened to Peter uh, already in his life, a very significant event. So we're going to look at Luke 5, um, and these will be on the screen as well. In Luke 5, in verse 4, it says, And when he had finished speaking, He said to Simon, that's Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets. Um, Sorry. 
Let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So not only had Jesus revealed himself in this exact way before, this was also a turning point in Peter's life. This was the moment where he decided to leave fishing behind and follow after Jesus. This was his conversion moment. Um, Yet in John, in our story today, nothing registers with Peter when this thing is happening again. Um, It takes John, here in the passage, as the disciple who Jesus loved, takes him identifying Jesus for Peter to, to get it. And then once Peter gets it, he just goes full out Peter mode, like 100%. Um, and during this week, while I was prepping, I've tried to identify who Peter reminds me of. I knew there was just someone, like reading through this, reading through the Bible, there was someone that reminded me of Peter. And finally, a couple of days ago, I realized it's my dog, Chloe. Um, and... I'm sure most dogs, most pet dogs are like this, um, but Chloe has never had a moment in her life where she wasn't just driven by impulse or reflex. Um, she doesn't sit there, think, make up her mind, and then act. She just goes. Um, and the classic example of this is dogs and squirrels, right? So a dog sees a squirrel and instantly tears after it. There's no, no time to think and plot the best way to, to catch that squirrel or even what to do with the squirrel when the dog catches it. And Peter is, Peter is a dog. He, he is an impulsive dog, and Jesus is the squirrel. <laughs> you know? John says, hey, that's our Lord. And Peter's like, Phew! you know, <laughs> he dives out of the boat, and he leaves the rest of the disciples with all these fish to worry about. Not thinking about, you know, anything else. Just, oh, the Lord takes off. Our Bibles have four Gospels worth of stories filled with quality Peter content like this. And he is consistent throughout. We see that he's impulsive. He's a bit hot-headed. At times, he's insecure and full of doubt. doubt. Um, he lets his fear gets the, get the best of him. He's the disciple who is quick to speak without thinking, and he ends up looking foolish. He usually misses the point of whatever Jesus is trying to, to teach. He's the disciple that we see Jesus correcting the most often. And for a lot of us, Peter hits home because we see ourselves in Peter. And that's not a comfortable thing to sort of sit with. But the Gospels have positioned Peter as the representative disciple, not just because of his leadership and status as like the head of the church, the early church, the guy who starts it. Um, but also because Peter's impulsivity aligns him with the rest of humanity. Um, we can all find ourselves in the behavior of Peter, the good and the bad. So what do we do with him? What do we do with Peter? How do we learn from him? I think one of the most common things we see is uh, either a teaching or a Bible study or sermon, 
something where you'll read a story that involves Peter, and the main takeaway is, hey, let's not be Peter. <laughs> you know, you look at his actions and say, don't do that. Um, there's a story in the middle of Matthew where Jesus says he has to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then Peter's standing right there, and how would you think he responds to this? He doesn't respond with any kind of wisdom at all. He rebukes Jesus and says, don't say that. And of course, Jesus responds, and he says, get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Um, Now we could read that story and say, hey, we have to take Jesus at his word. When he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Don't be like Peter. Um, We could look at the the story where Peter falls asleep in the garden after Jesus asks him to stay up and watch while he prays. We could look at that and say, Peter failed his Lord and let his flesh get the best of him. We can't be like Peter. Um, Or we could look at a fearful Peter drawing a sword during Jesus' arrest and slicing a servant's ear off and say, we can't let fear and anger uh, get the best of us. We can't be like Peter. But the problem with that simplistic type of teaching is that we already are Peter. Um, We have all messed up. We will all continue to mess up. We've all hurt other people. We've all contributed to the broken world we live in. Um, No matter how good our intentions are, no matter how many times we swear, it's not going to happen again. It happens again. Just like Peter, we each have a constantly growing list of ways we have denied Christ, even though we have professed our love for him over and over. So in our own strength, mustering up as much willpower as we possibly can, there is nothing we can do to escape this cycle of messing up, swearing we won't do it again, and then messing up again. It's impossible. Good luck. I thought it would be funny if that's where we ended this teaching. Yeah, go. Good luck with this impossible task. But we're going to keep reading, keep looking at our friend Peter. All right, John 21, back into it, starting with verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, a fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we're going to take a little detour. We're going to talk about our senses and our memory and just how incredibly powerfully linked they are. Um, I'm sure you can recall a time when you've heard a certain song and it triggered a powerful memory or there was a specific smell that transported you back to a specific time and place. I have a couple examples. So on the, with, the, with a smell, anytime I smell that smell before rain, that earthy, soily smell, I immediately find myself 
as a kid standing on the top of a hill at the summer camp I went to, just looking down, trying to figure out what I'm doing that day. And I'm like overwhelmed by the freedom of choice that I have and by just the childlike innocence that I'm feeling. And there's nothing in my life as an adult I can do to muster those feelings up. But for whatever reason, when I smell that smell, I'm instantly transported back there and feeling those things again. Um, a second example is a song. And maybe there are certain songs for you that you hear and you think about car rides with your parents as a kid. Or maybe there's a certain song that's linked to a high school sweetheart and you hear it and you just think of those memories you have with them. For me, the song that does this is a song by Gunger called We Will Run. And specifically, it's the, the outro, the instrumental outro. And it's a beautiful song, and it just builds and builds and builds and builds to this crescendo. When I'm listening to it and I hear the crescendo, I am standing in the BCM chapel, looking down the aisle, seeing the doors open, seeing Melissa there waiting for me, and me waiting for her. And I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude and love. And this song, probably more than any of our pictures from our wedding day, conjures these feelings up for me. Now, these are positive examples. There can also be negative ways that um, this happens. And I think the most common thing you would think of would be post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So when a person is um, subjected to prolonged traumatic situations or events, any situations of high stress or feeling threatened, instances of abuse, the brain codes this type of memory differently than any other memory. Our brains are trying to protect us from threatening situations. So it will hold on to those traumatic experiences and connect them to the things you were seeing, hearing, or smelling at the time, and it locks those things in as signs of threats. So if you experience a similar sensory stimulus as what you experienced during the trauma, your brain goes on high alert and immediately shifts you into fight or flight, um, and you're on the defensive. These triggers can include smells, sounds, even the sight of something or someone that uh, was involved in that experience. And all, all these triggers uh, can immediately bring on these full-body responses of panic or anxiety. This can debilitate someone, potentially causing them to constantly be on edge, uh, easily slipping between high stress and anxiety and depression. Um, so what does this have to do with Peter? Like, why are we talking about this? Well, it would be reasonable to think that anyone who loved Jesus and also witnessed the events of Good Friday, uh, they would describe that as traumatic. Combine this with the fact that Peter spent the hours before Jesus' crucifixion just hiding in the shadows and actively denying that he even knew Jesus. And you have to believe that Peter was dealing with lingering feelings of shame and grief, even after Jesus rose from the dead and revealed himself to the disciples. At the Last Supper, Peter was told by Jesus that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And of course, this came to be true. Um, the rooster crows after Peter has denied him three times, and immediately Peter feels the weight of shame and grief, says he wept. 
Now think about what we know about sensory triggers and memory. Imagine Peter hearing a rooster crow at dawn every day following Jesus' death. At best, these crows made Peter think back to what was probably the most regretful time of his life. At worst, a rooster crow acted as a sensory trigger for Peter and sent his body into full-on panic. Either way, the sound of a rooster crowing was forever changed for Peter, and his grief and shame became inescapable because of how prevalent the rooster crowing was each and every morning. Let's look at another sensory trigger for Peter. Um, I'm going to read from John 18. This takes place a few pages before where we are hanging out. So at this point in the narrative, Jesus has been arrested and he's on trial. Peter's trying to remain unnoticed so people don't recognize him as one of Jesus' disciples. So we're going to start in verse 15. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to him, said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I am not. That's his first denial. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So verse 18, 18, it says, Servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. Peter denies Jesus while warming himself by that charcoal fire. A few verses later, he's warming himself by the same charcoal fire when he denies Jesus two more times and hears the rooster crow. So flip back, John 21. Let's look again at verse 9. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So if you do a little word study and look at the Greek behind the English, um, behind our translation, you'll see that the original Greek word here that's translated to the phrase charcoal fire is unique and very different from any other word that's translated into fire that we have in the Bible. This specific Greek word only occurs twice in the Bible. Both times are in John's gospel, and both times involve Peter. John wants us to know that this wasn't any old campfire, that Jesus didn't just drag driftwood out of the sea to you know, start a fire. John is being very intentional with his words. And he tells us this, Jesus built a fire that will produce a unique and specific smell, a smell that triggers a specific memory for Peter. We see that Jesus, in setting the scene, has intentionally created a context in which to redefine, reframe, and redeem Peter's past failings in light of his grace and in light of Peter's calling. There are so many parallels at play here that Peter's memories from years of following Jesus have to be just working in overdrive, things just popping in his mind. So we already looked at Jesus having the disciples fish on the other side of the boat. Um, We can also think of all the other miracles that Jesus performed involving water, from calming the storm to Peter himself walking on water in faith. 
In addition to the water, we have Jesus and the disciples sharing a breakfast of fish. And you would probably immediately think of Jesus multiplying the fish on the side of the mountain for the hungry 5,000 people. And Jesus is also breaking bread with the disciples around this fire. This is an act that he redefined days before during the Last Supper and now represented his life, his body broken for them, his life given up. So all these things should be triggering in our minds, in the mind of Peter, all these memories of just how big and brilliant Jesus is. And then there's the charcoal fire at the center of the scene. This is a sensory reminder of Peter's denial. This centerpiece setting um, is the stage for our conversation between Jesus and Peter that's about to happen. So let's look at verse 15. It says, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk whenever, wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And we'll stop there. That last little bit is referring to Peter's martyrdom. Um, Peter was crucified just like his Savior. So... This conversation, uh, we don't know if it's the first time Jesus and Peter have talked, you know, one-on-one. We don't know if they had already cleared the air about the whole denial thing. Um, All we know is that this is the only one-on-one interaction we have between Jesus and Peter. Uh, It's the only one we have in the Bible post-resurrection. Um, this is the conversation that the, the gospel writers chose to preserve for us. Because of this, it's significant that Jesus doesn't mention Peter's denial a single time. He doesn't bring up a laundry list of his past mistakes. He doesn't question Peter's loyalty or trust. He simply asks Peter if he loves him. And of course, we must take note that Jesus makes Peter answer the question three times. And thus giving us another parallel, parallel to Peter denying Jesus three times. This isn't some magic spell that instantly undoes the grief and regret that Peter's feeling, but it's another parallel that Jesus is using to symbolize how he always gets the final word. So I want to invite you to look at what Jesus is doing here and to think how you would handle it if you were in his shoes, talking to Peter probably wouldn't look like this. I know for me, it wouldn't look like this. I would most likely urge Peter to admit that he, that he wronged me and that he hurt me. 
And even if I got him to do that, I would still carry a little grudge, you know? But Jesus' way of handling the conversation reflects grace and mercy. It's representative of the kingdom of God and not our broken world. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is a powerful and daunting calling. One that Peter probably thought about throughout his life. Um, one that in all of his missteps and impulsive selfishness, he probably questioned, probably questioned his qualifications and whether or not Jesus chose the right person. But here, with them sitting around the charcoal fire, Jesus is reaffirming that calling. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Tend to my sheep. Feed my lambs. By not even bringing up Peter's mistakes, by not addressing the denial, Jesus is shifting the focus of the conversation away from the ways Peter has failed and the shame he is feeling because of the ways he's failed. And he moves the focus onto the love Peter has for Jesus and what the outworking of that love looks like. Without saying it outright, Jesus is essentially saying, despite the past, you are still who I've chosen to shepherd my flock. Your love for me qualifies you for the task I've placed in front of you. So ultimately, the love for Peter, the love Peter has for Jesus, is central to this story. And if that is present, then the rest, the rest will work itself out as Peter walks forward in faithfulness and love. So let's look at that last little bit of verse nineteen. It says, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus closes the conversation by saying, follow me, and that's what Peter does. We know from the book of Acts, and we know from his two epistles, that Peter goes on to live up to the calling that Jesus has put on his life, to be the rock upon which the church would be built. In Acts, we see him preach many gospel messages, including the one at Pentecost where 3,000 people give their life to Jesus. He writes two significant letters that we have in our Bible that are filled with encouragement and practical Christ-centered teaching. Um, I'm going to put up a little snippet of one of those letters. Well, I'm not going to do it. Sophie's going to do it. And we're going to look at some words of Peter from 1 Peter So over a few decades, Peter grows from a fearful, impulsive fisherman into a person so confident in how Jesus shines through his actions and words that he can write something like this without feeling like a hypocrite. So verse 13 from 1 Peter 1 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Remember, this is Peter, (laughs) the guy who seemingly has no sober-mindedness. Um, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is the same guy that we looked at this morning. Same guy who at one point pulled a sword on an innocent person. This is the same Peter who oscillates between 
uh, affirming the identity of Christ and then denying it in the exact same scene. He says to not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And we have pages of evidence of Peter acting out of the passions of his former ignorance. Yet, because of the mercy of Jesus and the context of grace that following him provides, Peter walked alongside Jesus in his easy and light yoke, learning from him that his failings never defined him, and they never disqualified him. At the same time, we have to remember that sin always brings brokenness into the world, and there are always consequences and lingering aftershocks to our disobedience and sin. Peter probably never forgot about all the ways he had failed. He probably always carried some regret for the ways he had hurt others. You've got to think he was still haunted by the sound of roosters crowing every single day of his life until he died. But for those found in Christ, there's no more condemnation. One of the blessings of discipleship with Jesus is that we each have a context of grace in which he teaches us how to live into the freedom of no longer being shackled to the passions of our former ignorance. It's about our minds and our hearts catching up to the reality of the kingdom of God. We still mess up. We still choose our flesh over the spirit. But the pull of temptation becomes weaker and weaker over time as we learn to be satisfied holistically with Christ. One of the ways we learn to be satisfied with Christ is by choosing to follow him not letting our shame define us and not becoming paralyzed by the fact that we will certainly mess up again. But knowing that Jesus in all his grace, mercy, and beauty is calling us to a life of freedom. Knowing that we can cease striving because the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Knowing that the kingdom of God is already ours. And now we just need to learn to live in it and learn to embody it. Like I mentioned before, Peter can be considered the representative disciple because of how relatable he is. But this isn't just because we get to see him mess up over and over. Peter is the representative disciple because we are on the exact same path of Christ-like transformation. Jesus wants to transform each of us from prideful, entitled sinners into selfless, sacrificial saints, just like he did with Peter. And if you ever doubt the work of Christ in your own life, no matter where on the journey you are, you can look at the transformation of our brother Peter as evidence that Jesus is not done with you yet. So I want to wrap up our time with a question. I'm going to ask a question, and I want you to think about it and answer it, but not out loud, because that would be awkward. Um, think about it. And have an answer ready in your mind. So set the scene. You're sitting at the charcoal fire. Peter and Jesus just got done talking. Peter gets up. Jesus turns to you. And he asks you, do you love me? Do you love Jesus? So answer yes and follow him. Follow him down a path of self-care and healing. One that leads you into healing past hurts and past shames. Follow him down a path of grace, learning to forgive yourself and forgive others. He has already forgiven you, and he wants you to live without the unhealthy burden of shame you've been freed from already. Your past does not define you. Your mistakes do not define you. Your trauma does not define you. 
and your abuse and your abusers have no say in who you are. Jesus, your loving creator who only wants good for you and who calls you his beloved is the only one who defines you. So shed the burden of lies and follow him. If you carry deep shame or deep-seated trauma, seek the necessary help. Baton Rouge is full of great counselors who just devote their practice to helping people live out the truth of freedom. Surround yourself with people who speak truth and who will call out lies for what they are. Let your love for Jesus be the extra push you may need to follow him as he leads you to ditch the burden, the heavy weight of shame, and follow after him. All right, reset. We're back at the fire. We're sitting around the charcoal fire. Jesus asks you again. He says, do you love me? Your answer is yes. And follow him by humbling yourself through practices of self-denial. Because if you attempt to follow him while lugging around your pride and your ego, you will quickly become humbled, whether you want it or not. I have a quick little testimony about this of a time I got humbled. So when I first started to discern calling into ministry, I was excited, I was ready. Um, For the first time, I felt a passion and a draw to do something. It doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not a very passionate person. Um, But once I felt that calling, I was like, all right, this is awesome. I actually care about this. So seminary was the next step. I enrolled, I started my program. A couple years into the program, um, taking a full, full-time course load at the seminary. I'm working full-time at a cricket farm. I'm doing no vocational ministry. Most of my classmates were employed by churches doing ministry for a living. My discontentment was super high. This wasn't what I had envisioned. This wasn't what I wanted. This wasn't the calling that I thought God was calling me to. So instead of trying to align my desires with God's will, I got bitter. I got very bitter, and I became mentally and emotionally worn out. I started comparing myself to the people in my class who had what I thought I was being called to. And I got so worn worn down and burnt out that I started turning in assignments weeks late not caring about the classwork at all, or even being at seminary. So by the end of that semester, I was completely burnt out and couldn't even see continuing seminary. So I decided to take this semester off, the next semester. And during that semester off, as I detoxed from the just poison of comparison that I was submitting myself to daily, um, God began to reveal the incredible amount of pride and idolatry within me. The calling into seminary and ministry that I'd felt from God had quickly morphed into something that was being defined by me. I made my mind up of what I should be doing and the type of future I deserved and was entitled to. I stopped praying about it because I thought I knew best. I was using my limited and selfish perspective to fuel my sense of entitlement, and I labeled it all as following God. It wasn't until God let me get completely burnt out that my eyes were open to how foolish I was being. 
And I tell you this story to illustrate the impossibility of following Jesus without first humbling yourself and aligning your expectations and desires to his will. I had tricked myself into believing I was following Jesus and I was really following myself. I was being my own God. I am not a good God. (laughs) So if you love Jesus, make self-denial a regular practice. Try fasting. Don't eat for a day and see how God can use that act of self-denial to humble you. Eliminate distraction and pursue times of solitude. Pray without ceasing. Ask the Father to search and know you and to expose any waywardness within you. For any life decision, where to live, what what your occupation should be, whether or not you should marry, have kids, whether to pursue adoption or fostering, any decisions made without first setting aside pride and entitlement and consulting the Lord, you run the risk of having to walk through very hard and humbling circumstances. And yes, God can redeem those things. He can redeem and use our prideful decisions to bring about goodness. Just look at Peter's life. But why would we choose the hard and heavy burden when he has promised us a light and easy one? So if you love him, deny yourself. Follow him. All right, back at the fire. Jesus asks you, do you love him? Yes, then follow him and let him affirm how worthy and qualified you are for the things he has called you to. How easy is it to let the voices of the world define who you are? How easy is it to let those voices say what's true? Our culture, our society, our friends and family, they all have opinions about what makes you, you. But Jesus' word is the only one that holds any true weight. You may think that you are lesser because you are unmarried, that you have inherently less value because you don't have kids, that the ways God has wired you and gifted you somehow make you lesser than someone else, that your testimony of how God reveals himself to you isn't worthwhile when compared to others. But the truth is, if Jesus finds you valuable and says you have worth, then anything said to the contrary is completely wrong. The only way to get better at drowning out the worldly lies about standards for success and value is by saturating ourselves with truth. We don't spend time in Scripture to earn favor or become more worthy in the eyes of God because you can't earn something that's already been freely given to you. No, we spend time reading and studying the Word of God so the Spirit can help our minds and hearts catch up to the reality that we already have access to. You are a treasured member of the family of God. When God calls someone to something, he doesn't mix, up, mix you up with someone else. He has called you for that job, and he is training and equipping you for it. So the God that calls you qualified and worthy and gives you the necessary tools is the same one who looked at the impulsive fisherman and said, you are Peter on this rock. I will, I will build my church. So if you love Jesus, then you are qualified and worthy of his call. So before we close, I think it's important to acknowledge something that for many of us, we're here on a Sunday morning. We made a choice to be at church. We would answer yes to that question. Do you love Jesus? But for some of us, it's possible that we would answer no. 
where we would answer, I used to, or I don't really know if I love Jesus. And if this is, if this is you, if you would answer that way and have a hard time affirming your love for Jesus, I want you to know that's completely valid. It's completely valid. And maybe you would have, you would have had no problem years ago saying that you love Jesus. Maybe you've never gotten to a point in your life where you could say you love Jesus. Maybe you're just skeptical of all of this. I can't pretend to know why you would answer that question with a no. But what I do know is that I've been there and I still get to that point where I'm not so sure about my own love for Jesus. The world can be dark. The world can be tragic. We're made aware daily of just selfish and evil motivation. People in power. There's an insane amount of abuse and oppression that happens at the hands of the church. People who claim to represent Jesus. And all this makes it hard to reconcile a beautiful and kind Jesus. The Jesus we've talked about today with the Jesus claimed by people who are anything but beautiful and kind. It would be foolish of me to think that there's anything I can say to convince you that Jesus is worth loving because I'm fully capable of misrepresenting him too. But as a person who can relate to and sympathize with all these dilemmas, someone who still experiences doubts, still questions the validity of this whole thing, um, I've learned that it's all about faith. It has to be about faith because there's so much evidence that exists that makes us question the the possibility of a person like Jesus existing in a world as broken as the one we live in. And with faith, it just takes the smallest amount to step forward toward Jesus. So for you, if you answer that question, no. If there's even the smallest sliver of hope, if there's the smallest amount of belief in you, take a step toward Jesus today. There have been so many times where I've prayed the prayer found in Mark 9 of the doubtful man, where he says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Usually the next step of faith is a little bit easier. One after that's a little bit easier. And the faith keeps growing until I'm drawn out of my unbelief and I'm face to face with the true Jesus. And that's the beautiful thing. There's not one person in this world who can represent or explain or like present Jesus to you fully, unadulterated. No one organization or denomination gets it all right. But when you hold up the Jesus of the Bible, the merciful, kind, patient, and loving Jesus we see in the Gospels, to all the false gods and misrepresentations of him in the world, you see just how worthy and good he is. So we're about to have a time of worship and response. So if right now you would say no to the question of whether or not you love Jesus, and you have even the smallest amount of faith, I want to invite you to use this time to pray. Ask for help in your unbelief and ask for a merciful revelation of the true Jesus today. So to close, I want to go back to the words of our friend Peter. Um, I want to use how he closes 1 Peter, 1 Peter 5, as a prayer that propels us into this response time we're about to have. And the band can come back up. Um, So... 
I'm going to read it. It will be on the screen. You can go ahead and stand up. This, this time, the band's going to play two songs. If you feel led to sing, sing. If you feel like the Spirit's leading you to pray, spend time praying. Whatever you need to do, whatever the Spirit's leading you into, be obedient. Use this time for that. Um, so I'm going to read these words of Peter, and I'll let it be our prayer to close this part. There's no need to have your Bible out. It'll be on the screens if you want it. Or if you want to just bow your head, that's fine too. But remember, this is our brother Peter. This is the impulsive fisherman that Jesus transformed into a mature shepherd. These are his words from 1 Peter 5. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, Strengthen and establish you. To Jesus Christ be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.